Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And on this week's show, Jasmine will be interviewing author and artist and practitioner of love activism, which also happens to be the title of one of her books, Stacy Russo. I really enjoyed chatting with Stacy, and I especially enjoyed the way that I learned about her in the first place, which I won't give away because I talked to her about it on the interview. And on this week's Flock bonus segment, I will be continuing my conversation with Stacy. So if you are a Flock member, thank you very much. You will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can't afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern. And we have some very inspiring guests. A lot of them are guests who have been on the podcast, but we get, get a little bit more personal. And we have some excellent conversations about activism, about life, about this, about that. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. That's, you can write to us there if you hate Facebook as much as I do. And you can set up one-on-one conversations with Jasmine too. Yeah, I always enjoy those. So before we get to our chat with Stacy, you came over the other day and we watched a movie on Disney Plus that I think is supposed to be for like maybe fifth graders because that's what we like in the world. And it was called Better Nate Than Ever. And it's just a silly movie. Maybe if you have kids, you've watched it already, but I actually loved it because it's about this kid trying to make it on Broadway. And I have a very childlike, uh, desire to watch every movie about every kid who wants to make it on Broadway, which is funny because I used to be a child wrangler for Broadway kids in my 20s, which was a totally bananas job. And by the way, in the big blackout in 2004, I was with these kids who were in this off-Broadway show and I was the wrangler and we were in Times Square. So I was like in charge of all of these kids and suddenly all the lights in Times Square go goes out. <laughs> so Wrangler yeah. is like Broadway speak for babysitter? Basically, you're you're like kind of in charge of the kids. And I was a nanny in my 20s, and I was also trying to make it in theater, so it was a natural kind of job for me. Were you working in a b- bridal shop in Flushing, Queens, when your boyfriend kicked you out in one of those crushing scenes? Yeah, well, what was I to do? You know, where was I to go? Broadway. I, I was out of my fanny. <laughs> Broadway. <laughs> So we were watching this movie, Better Nate Than Ever. It was really good. There were a few places where, like, I don't know, the writing was just a little bizarrely weak that they they skipped over some, like, important details. But but 99%, I would say, aces. Yeah, watch it. Totally. And so during the closing credits, this song comes on, which we looked up, and it's called About to Go Off, but it's spelled A-W-F, which we also Googled. Apparently, <laughs> that's what, and, that's what the kids are saying these days. How do you know whether they're saying that or or OFF? I don't know. I don't know how you know the difference. Well, it kind of means the same thing. Like I'm about to lose my shit is basically what it means. And so the lyric, and we're just like about to turn off the movie because it's done. And the lyric is, "I'm a star maker, a mover, and a shaker. Only 13, but bringing home the vegan bacon." And we're like, "What? Did you hear that? Did I just hear that through vegan colored?" eyeglasses or vegan colored hearing aids what okay hold on 
<laughs> I'm, mess, I'm messing metaphors up right now. But we were like both, both very confused about whether we heard it. Yeah, no, that was a really random vegan. You know, I, I'm always on the, the lookout or the hear out for them, but that was a really random one. And I, I whenever I hear them, the more random they are, the more they give me hope, like that it's just become part of the lexicon. Oh, totally. Today on the Today Show, they were doing a fashion show and the announcer brings out this woman in these overalls and she says that these are free people, vegan leather overalls. And the host says, oh, vegan leather. And the the person who was running the segment said, right, because we can never have real leather these days. We are done with that. And I was like, what? What? (laughs) What planet do we live on suddenly? It was so funny, but it is odd. On the Today Show, no less. Yeah, it is odd that some people are, these sort of vegan mentions feel like the vegan veganism is totally in the mainstream. And in some ways it, it is, but there's this like super odd line, right? Like, you know, for example, the the movie that we were watching, the Better Nate Than Ever, like, no one was vegan or there I mean they totally ate animal products and the today show is anti leather apparently in that segment but every other segment is full of animals it's not like there's any consistency it reminds me of the other day I was getting my hair done as I do and my hairdresser and I were talking about cruelty free vegan beauty and she was like outraged that people test cosmetics on animals. She thinks it's antiquated. She's like, they're not even our species. Why would they produce the same results? It's just mean. I mean, she sounded like us, totally. And then as I'm leaving, she's like, oh, do you want some of that candy? Oh, wait, you're vegan, right? You don't eat milk chocolate? And I was like, well, I eat vegan milk chocolate, but I don't eat cow's milk chocolate. There is a way of getting milk chocolate derived, not from the cows. Of course, she's staring at me like I'm totally insane. And I just was like, we literally were just talking about animal cruelty. You know, why? I know that I'm talking about what every vegan talks about all the time, which is just cognitive dissonance and how inexplicable and arbitrary it is. But sometimes it just hits you. You know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. It's just bizarre. Like people are just bizarre when it comes to food. It's a whole different thing. I don't know, you know, the meat just permeates their brains or something. They can't even think straight about it. How can you possibly care about your cosmetics and your leather not being vegan and not care about your lunch not being vegan? It, it's, it's just, people are, people are so confusing. Yeah, totally confusing. Well, and confused. People are confused. You also, you, you, one of your many jobs is you work for Kinder Beauty and you've, which is a totally vegan company. And people are so proud of the fact that it's vegan. And, and I think this is true a lot in the cosmetics world that people really, really care about their cosmetics and personal care products being vegan now. It's a yeah, big absolutely. thing. And these are not necessarily people who, have stopped eating animals. It's it's confusing. Well, like I was saying, it's confusing, but that's because people are confused. A few weeks ago, we reported on Farm Farm Forward's reports, basically saying that that labeling is bullshit, which we all knew. But now there's more studies. They went through all of the humane, la- quote unquote, humane labels, and said they were all 
nonsensical. I'm not sure this has to do with why people are confused about how meat is made out of animals, but it does confuse them about how animals are treated. Uh, and yeah, you had just brought up right before we started recording this article on Veg News, which apparently, which is just so not surprising, but apparently the antibiotic claims made in uh, all sorts of, of animal agriculture labels raised without antibiotics is uh, is nonsense. Like, why would anybody think it wouldn't be nonsense? They can't raise these animals, you know totally free. Well, maybe they can. I don't know. But it's just, there's just too much filth and it, they don't grow fast enough. And and so, yeah, this study of the Antibiotic Resistant Action Center at George Washington University, they said loads of animals from factory farms that are saying they were raised without antibiotics or testing positive. So, yeah, it's all bullshit. So I, maybe you can say that's why people are inconsistent. I, I don't think that's I don't think that even gets close. I don't think it even gets close. Yeah, people know it's bullshit. People know it's wrong. One of the things I've noticed in talking to some of my students that I I feel like, you know, I try not to go too far on, why aren't you vegan? But maybe I should, I don't know. But um, (laughs) they don't think it'll do anything. You know, they think that the industry is just so enormous that like like one person going vegan is irrelevant and... I think that's nowadays one of the excuses that people really use because they can't, they can't really, well, some of them can't plead ignorance anymore. And obviously vegan is, you know, considered a a, a good thing right there in the mainstream, like on, on, on the Today Show. But for some reason, when it comes to food, they're like, oh, you know, it just really won't matter. Like vegan is cool, but, but it's not relevant. It's not like I'm actually contributing, which is nonsensical, of course. Yeah. I was actually just checking out this news. This well, it's not a new site. This site new to me called Yes Magazine, and it's social justice driven. It had some really cool articles, and then I get to this article that was cleverly titled "Not Today, Satan," and I was like, <laughs> "Huh? I wonder if that's a gluten free person writing that." Like, I'm everything I see is like through through this vegan lens. And I, of course, that's not true. Of course, it was a story about how veganism is totally unrealistic. And it was for the exact reason you just said. They basically said, it's not going to matter if one person does it. And I was like, but that, you know, they, they're really missing the forest for the trees here, if that's the saying. But I, I just was so put off by that article. I think that's a perfect saying, because, you know, the forest is made up of the trees. And if each tree decides that they don't care about the forest, then then yeah, if you get totally. my drift. Well, I mean, of course, systemic change is absolutely crucial, but I don't see how you fight for systemic change unless you're willing to change yourself. Yeah. And anyway, individual, as we all know, individual change matters. I mean, especially if you've been vegan for a long time, things used to be very different. By the way, total shameless plug, I have uh, the new issue of Veg News came out and I have a column in it. And in my call, I don't even, I didn't even think this would get published. I just submitted it kind of hoping it would. And it did. I wrote a love letter to veganism and it's because I have been vegan for 18 years this year. And so I was basically celebrating the fact that I've been vegan for long enough, the amount of time it takes to make an adult. And so I just talked a little bit about why I love veganism. It's a little tongue in cheek as I try to do. Also in the same issue, the brand new issue, I have an interview with David Yang, who we interviewed, you interviewed for our hen house a few years back uh, from Omnipork. 
And that was super inspiring. So I hope people check it out. It's a great issue. I think there are a lot of reasons to hope though. And I have to say hope is something I really got after interviewing today's guest, Stacey Russo. She is super hopeful. I loved our chat. She's different than other guests that we've had in the past. She comes from a very different perspective. And that's one of my favorite things about our hen house is that we can have these discussions about changing the world for animals from a multiplicity of perspectives. And I think Stacey is no exception at all. I think people are going to be super inspired after hearing what she has to say. Absolutely. So let's get to that. Stacy Russo, a librarian and associate professor at Santa Ana College, is committed to creating books and art for a more peaceful world. She is the author of several nonfiction books, the editor of two essay collections, a published poet, a collage artist, a DIY oral historian, and the author-illustrator of children's picture books. In addition to love activism, which I mentioned previously, among her books are Stella Peabody's Wild Librarian Bakery and Bookstore, a Better World Starts Here, Activists and Their Work, and We Were Going to Change the World, Interviews with Women from the 1970s and 1980s Southern California punk rock scene. She will be joining Jasmine right after this. This episode of Our Hen House is brought to you in part by Meow Meow Tweet. Meow Meow Tweet creates vegan personal care for everybody. Their products are always ethical, low-waste, handmade, and cruelty-free. As the first brand to introduce 100% backyard compostable deodorant sticks and lip balms, their skincare, body care, and deodorants are designed to minimize plastic consumption, and they're offered at an accessible price point. Meow Meow Tweet takes a slow food approach to skincare. All formulations are artfully blended by a certified aromatherapist and herbalist. Ingredients are certified organic, they're non-GMO, and they're from strong or renewable plant populations. And they also avoid materials that harm the ecosystems of animals and people, which is what we're all about at our hen house. Products are made in small batches by hand in their California micro factory. Meow Meow Tweet is also a certified B Corp, plastic negative, and a climate neutral company. How much do we love this? Meow Meow Tweet redistributes funds to causes in the categories of social justice, animal justice, and nature. Our Hen House listeners can get 20% off at meowmeowtweet.com by using the code HENHOUSE. Again, you get 20% off at meowmeowtweet.com by using the code HENHOUSE. Welcome to our HENHOUSE, Stacey. Thank you so much for having me here. I admire you greatly. Oh, thank you. I actually was so excited about your work when I found you. And I have to tell you how I found you because I'm not sure you know that story. But we were doing a Flock Friday call, which is a perk that we offer to our flock where they can join us for like a virtual community gathering once a month. And it was around Valentine's Day and I was trying to think about subjects and I was like, uh, love activism. And so I just Googled it because sometimes, you know, the internet machine will give me some ideas and there you are. And I'm like, holy crap, I found this author and activist. (laughs) 
and she's vegan. And it was like, I loved that moment. I was like, book her. So that's how you joined us. And I've really enjoyed the process as has the Arhen House team of learning a little bit about your work. So I know you do so many things and you have so many books, but I do want to start by focusing on love activism. And if you could give us a general overview of love activism, and then perhaps we can go through the elements one by one and talk about them. Yeah, certainly. Thank you. And I love hearing that story because I had no idea. I, I wondered how you found me because yes, I'm vegan. I'm a vegan writer and artist, but you can't necessarily tell overtly from some of my work that I'm vegan unless you look into it a little bit. So um very happy to be here and know that story of how you found me. There was a time several years ago when I was divorced and I was living in this wonderful apartment and I was not romantically involved with anybody. And I was thinking a lot about love and I was also thinking a lot about activism at the time. And I was thinking about love a lot because the culture is so obsessed with romantic love. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with romantic love, of course. <laughs> and the obsession of, you know, finding a partner. And if you don't have a partner, there must be something lacking and all that goes into that. And they can actually be harmful at times for people. And I was thinking of my life and I, I just thought, I have so much love in my life. And, but I did not have a partner. And it really brought in the definition of love for me. And um, thinking of activism as well at that time, I thought that's really the center of my activism, mm. I feel, is this expansive view of love. So I first started making little cards about love activism with different ideas of practices. And then I made a pamphlet, like a zine about mm -hmm. it. And then one day I was just writing you know how that goes sometimes and you start writing and writing and hours went by and I thought, oh, now I'm writing the book. <laughs> so that's how that came about. But just in a nutshell, I guess, love activism is a daily holistic activism of kindness, but it's not fluffy. It's very powerful. And it's not a single issue activism. It looks at all different forms of oppression and injustice in the world. And how we can put love into the small things we do, as well as the large things we do. And the last thing I would say is when I was writing the book, I thought, well, I'm going to have to really figure out how to define love, which can be challenging. Mm -hmm. And and there are so many different ways to define it, depending on the type of love. But really, almost any kind of love, if we think of what is the essence of love, it's doing no harm. It's when you love, if it's a dog, a person, the ocean, your community, yourself, you want what you love to prosper, to be free, to not be harmed, to be liberated. And when that's not happening, then I feel you're moving away from love. So that really helped me to think of how love is a form of activism if I think of it as how can I live my life to the best of my ability, not, I cannot be perfect, but to the best of my ability 
and not harm. I love that, which feels appropriate. And I like that you said it's not fluffy. I like that you're putting an energy behind it and you're saying it's actually power. And I think that's one of the reasons why I felt gravitated toward you because when I was looking for just different ways of talking about love and activism, you came from such a holistic approach connecting so many of these overlapping injustices, but at the root of it, you are vegan. And of course, I wish that I assumed that everyone talking about these issues was vegan, but most of the time they're not. And that's why I was like, she is, she is. You know, it's like how I like mindfulness instructors, you know, Pima Chodron and Tara Brock, who are both vegan, because it's easier for me to take in that message of mindfulness in their case, and in your case, of love as activism. So I'd love to just, (laughs) every time I say love, I feel like I should get a ding, ding. I'd (laughs) love to just like talk about some of these pillars that make up love activism and in any way that you want to talk about it as it relates to animals too. I think that would be of particular interest to our listeners. So let's first talk about service, if it's okay with you. And here's a quote that really stuck out to me. Performing acts of kindness for our loved ones, communities, strangers, and the environment. When I was thinking about that, performing acts of kindness and the act of service, I thought about the flock and how tight-knit they are and how that sort of act of kindness is something that I think really propels the our henhouse community and then from a broader gaze, the animal activism community. Can you please talk about what you mean by service and where that fits in to love activism for you? Certainly. I definitely feel that service is a very powerful form of love. And there are so many different ways that we can serve each other and serve animals. For example, um, cooking a meal for an elderly person or someone who's not able to cook for themselves as a form of service. Visiting perhaps someone who's lonely, who doesn't have family or who's ill, that's a form of service. It's also a form of service and a form of love for me to currently care for my senior rescue dog, Mm. Walter. And he recently lost the use of his back legs. He's going to physical therapy. So I'm doing everything I can to hopefully get him to fully walk again. Mm. But my life changed overnight, needing to care for him. And Mm. this just happened in November. So I reprioritized everything immediately to care for him. And that I feel is definitely a form of service. Taking care of my plants in the garden is a form of service, especially the ones that may attract bees and birds and help the environment. So just that little word service, if we broaden it, we can see the impact can be huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is so cool because I think Marianne and I started our hen house like 13 years ago, or we're in our 13th year, basically because we don't think there is one right way to change the world for animals. And I think we need a multi-pronged approach, but by and large, the the most common question I get from people who want to get further involved is what can I do? And so what I like so much about your messaging is it's very emboldening and empowering. And you're saying like, maybe you're already doing these things. Like certainly this, this act of service that you just talked about, maybe we're already doing it, but it strikes me as 
empowering from the perspective of like long-term activism and avoiding burnout if I start to look at my own relationship with my rescued elderly dogs as service, as a form of activism. It definitely so. I agree with you so much on that. And a, a big part of what was on my mind while writing this book was the burnout that can come from activism work and also the feeling of these large, cruel, violent systems and how can I as an individual do something about this? It can make us feel like what we're doing doesn't matter, even though it does. Mm -hmm. So I think in writing the book, I was looking at how these principles of love activism also can be applied as self-care for ourselves. So we also can apply things such as service to ourselves too. That was definitely on my mind. Mm -hmm. And it does help me at times to think of what I'm doing when I care for my dog as a form of activism that does really help. Mm -hmm. It um, puts it in perspective for me. And it's a daily form of activism that's out of love, of course. Yeah, definitely. Let's move on to empathy, which is a word that so many of us live by. I mean, this is the the basis of why we're doing what we're doing. Here's a quote from your book. When we are empathetic, we do not just know about or relate to another's pain or suffering, but we feel the person's pain and suffering deeply as if it were our own. So regarding empathy, do you think that one of the things that gets in the way of people caring more about animals is that they're afraid of experiencing empathy for creatures who are suffering? I think that is definitely a possibility. And and I feel like that's also sometimes why people will make jokes and tease vegans or, and it's very painful. And I feel that sometimes it's a displaced humor in a way so that they don't have to really consider their choices, perhaps, because once you deeply think about eating animals, for example, if you're going to sit with that and really investigate that and think about it, you're going to have to get close to what you might be afraid to see or to observe, you know? Mm -hmm. So definitely so. I think that even with human rights, if we read stories about people who may be very different from ourselves and we allow that story in, there are definitely going to be some aspects to the story that we're going to probably feel a connection with as just as another human being. And that's going to perhaps create that feeling of empathy. Mm-hmm. So if we read the story of someone who suffered who we maybe have passed judgment on in the past because of them being different and not understanding their story. The empathy then is a bridge, I feel, to love and activism and to changing our whole perspective. But we have to be willing to go there. Empathy also requires a lot of self-care. That's so true. Yeah. (laughs) And I think for a lot of people who are vegan, animal suffering is so incredibly difficult to think about or to witness because there's that huge empathy that we carry with us. 
So we have to definitely take time to care for ourselves as well so that mm-hmm. we can, can continue the work and can continue to face that. Let's talk about self-care since you brought it up. Here's a quote from the book that spoke to me. Self-care makes us strong and better able to care for others. There is nothing selfish about taking time and energy to do things for ourselves that will ultimately result in bringing more joy to those we interact with. When we are physically and emotionally healthy, we can offer more love to others. Activists who do not practice self-care can easily experience burnout. So you do talk a lot about self-care as an important part of activism, and I couldn't agree more. But I have seen an unfortunate trend toward the term self-care being deployed in a somewhat self-indulgent way without that counterpoint of activism. So how do you draw the line and what techniques do you suggest for activists to truly take care of themselves while still keeping their focus on their activism? I think that's something that we all have to figure out for ourselves. I do see what you're talking about and even this real hyper-consumerism around this idea of self-care. And perhaps sometimes even for people that may already be rather indulgent in in self-care or have a lot more resources. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's something that we all have to just intuitively figure out for ourselves is when am I getting to a point where I'm no longer really helping others or I'm no longer really able to do this work well because I'm so exhausted or I'm so angry, right? Or so frustrated. Mm-hmm. And those can be signs of needing to take some time for ourselves. Just something for me that is very basic is when I take my dog to physical therapy, I could come home and try to get caught up on work during that time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I make a point of sitting at a cafe or doing something like that, you know, for myself for that little period of time and to try to not feel guilty about that because I know I'm going to be busy and caring for him the rest of the day. So just something like that. So it's not as if I'm indulging in in something, but I'm balancing my day so that I can give him what he needs then. Mm, I love that way of looking at it. You know, I have a friend who was like recently talking to me about taking a self-care day. And I said, oh, what are you going to do? And She said, oh, I'm going to get my nails done, get my hair done. And, you know, I thought to myself, that isn't how I think of the word self-care, though I do those things too. And I love doing them. And I certainly think if, if she wants to do those things, she should. But to me, it is about kind of balancing the give and take and and being really conscious about the give and take. So it might also mean making the doctor's appointments for yourself or staying on top of your mental health needs, all of those things. So I appreciate the way that you're putting it. I also appreciated the next tenant, the next pillar of this that I'll move to, which is nonviolence which is also something everyone listening to this today, we try to live by. And certainly being vegan is definitely a big part of that. But as we all know, it extends far beyond that. And here's a quote from your book. We must consider all acts of violence in our lives that we are complicit in and move toward eradicating them. 
This includes eating food that comes from violence or performing customs and rituals that our culture may celebrate that results in killing a living being. What a beautiful, powerful quote. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. And I'll mention too that an interesting thing about this book is a few times when I've been interviewed about it to a a non-vegan interviewing me, this is the area of the book that people have the hardest time with. I also had a publisher I was really hoping for, for this book. And the acquisitions editor could not get past this point. It's really interesting that as soon as you bring up animals and food and speak about the violence involved with that, that seems to be the area that people cannot reach. Yeah. At least the more mainstream. I do think that to live a life of no harm, a peaceful life to the best that we can, we do have to think about what are any actions, any activities, any purchasing, anything that I'm doing in my life that is somehow contributing to the violence against another being. Mm-hmm. It's not just the food, it's also the clothing, the cosmetics, you know, the cleaning products, but it's also in my speech. It's also in how I treat other people. It's also as a, a white person continuously learning and understanding racism. It's also sexism as a form of violence. There are all these different forms of violence. And a lot of these forms of violence are recognized as that more so. And then there are some that really are not. And the audience knows that, Mm -hmm. that when it comes to animals for food, that's a place where, because culturally... And most people find it acceptable. It's not described as violent. Mm-hmm. How interesting. I mean, just that that would be the thing that turns off a publisher. Just, I don't think you can get, I don't think you can have a book that is more of a big giant hug than yours. <laughs> and and it's like, it's empowering. It's, it's, there's not one part of it that it speaks down to you. It's like giving you, it's giving you hope in the day to day. It's sort of shuffling around things you're already doing to look at them as more of a conscious act. It is so supportive. And for, I just can imagine an editor on the other end being like, oh, but she mentions food. So no, pass. Like what? You know, what, what was interesting about that is the person ended up writing to me after the fact and apologized. And we ended up having an email correspondence. Huh. And she said there was something that she thinks personally upset her that she couldn't really deal with. Wow. Yeah. So it still didn't mean I, I got that publisher, but I was thankful for that. And I had another host of a show who commented on this part with the veganism, but he did say that he's no longer going to make fun of his friends who are vegan or make fun of vegans. Well, that's something. (laughs) I thought, well, that is something because I did think, well, that's, that's okay. That's a first step because at least 
he realizes there's a seriousness to it. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's a significance to that decision. And because it is very painful to be made fun of when you're aware of the reasons why you're vegan, it's right. nothing to, you know, to be teased about. So <laughs> that's something at our henhouse that we call rising anxieties. Like when people just make fun of it, it's indicating something inside of them that's like a deep discomfort. And in your, in that publisher's case, they were able to actually look at that. So you, yeah. you never do know. So I mentioned hope a moment ago, and hope is something we talk about a lot on our hen house because I believe, I must believe, I have a lot invested in believing that we can opt in to hope and that it isn't necessarily something that we feel organically or innately. And so I want to talk about hope. This is a quote from your book. Hope brings us out of despair, even when we may see so much around us that suggests our activism makes no difference. One of the best ways to cultivate hope is to perform acts that propel us toward possibilities and a better future. I totally resonate with that. I'm sure a lot of our listeners do too. We very frequently feel our activism doesn't make a difference, especially when it comes to animals and the atrocity that is being done to them behind closed doors. Where does hope come in? This is really the chapter I think that gets the most at the self-care for activists, the concern of the burnout and what can be done. So this chapter is really about how are ways that we can cultivate hope in our lives that will help us to continue moving forward. And, and the hope that we cultivate may not necessarily be specific to something with activism for animals, but it could be signing up for a class that we want to take in the future. We know it's out there and it gives us hope to know there's something out there for us coming up. Mm-hmm. It could be planting a tree. It could be joining a community garden. So you're seeing the cycles of things and how you can learn from the wisdom of the garden and have hope. So it's really about almost having anchors that we put out in the distant water ahead of us that we can continuously see that give us hope then moving forward. Mm. Yeah, That is beautiful. I haven't thought of it really in that context of having something planned, but Mm -hmm. especially in like in COVID times, I think it's been an important part of my own process, just have something on the calendar. And sometimes it's like taking an outside walk with someone in the winter, because that's the only thing that we feel is, you know, safe or whatever, or it's getting a haircut in the future that I am looking forward to. It's kind of like, I haven't thought about that in terms of hope, but I think that that's cool. I'm going to start to think of it that way. Yeah. I even tell my students I'll do things like I'll know a book's coming out that I'm really excited about and I'll put it on my calendar. And that can just help us with our daily lives, you know, and with depression and with burnout. Totally. I love that. So creativity is another thing you talk about. This is something you said. Creativity is an element of love activism that happens when we ourselves create art or we support the art of others. We are all artists and each of us has the ability to create. 
So you've said that we're all artists and we all have the ability to create. How should people who aren't drawn to art find their creative outlet? Well, there are a lot of different ways to be creative. So I think that art and creativity are defined in very strict ways in our society. doesn't have to be, though, because even something such as experimenting with vegan baking is a form of creativity. The other thing is simply putting marks on paper with paint, making a, a little zine or a booklet, doing movement, dance, authentic movement with our bodies. You know, we don't have to be professionals. We don't have to be trained artists to have creativity in our lives. Also, a form of activism, I feel, is showing up for other people who are creative in the sense of they have an art exhibit opening, they have a book event, and showing up for them. Also, writing thank you notes to artists and writers who you admire. They probably don't get them enough, even if you think they do. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that also taps you into the more larger creativity happening in society, I feel. The listeners may have heard the term craftivism, of course, you know, combining craft and activism together. So a lot of times, unfortunately, historically, things that women have done haven't been considered art, but they are art, but they've been labeled craft in a negative way. There's nothing wrong with the word craft, but that's just, you know, how it's been. So thinking of that, are there things that you do that you don't maybe think of as being creative or art that really are and that you can somehow use them in your activism work? I have a book called Craftivism and it talks about yarn bombing yeah. and it talked about yarn bombing like from an activist perspective. Right. It was really cool. And so like it had all these photos of people who had gone to sort of neglected neighborhoods and yarn bombed a lot of them. And it just, it became a statement and beautiful. So yeah, I've seen people doing things like little needlepoint with a message on there and just leaving mm -hmm. it somewhere in the city. So people walking by see it. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, like it's activism, but it's like a non-direct in a way. But you could have do that with a little message about animals or whatever it is. Yeah. So these are all forms of creativity. So you just mentioned women specifically, and I'd love to talk about feminism because this is, this was one of my entrees into animal activism was by way of both LGBTQ activism and feminism. You write, feminism happens when we do not place gender restrictions on others, when we embrace equality, when we allow all humans, regardless of gender, to reach their full potentials, when we don't make assumptions based on gender, and when we speak out against violence against women. Can you talk about your relationship with your feminism? Sure. Well, one thing I'll mention just in general with my activism is at the time that I first became vegetarian and, and later vegan, I was immersed in the punk rock scene. That was the 1980s. And so that's how I discovered animal rights was out of, out of punk rock. At the same time I discovered animal rights, I discovered everything else, women's rights, environmental injustices. Mm -hmm economic injustice and, and everything 
together. So these issues have always been connected for me as all these different forms of oppression with my heart being, you could say, the center of vegan. And it all stems from from that. An interesting thing about feminism and, and being a woman is there are times where I actually found myself judging somebody and assuming something that really taught me how ingrained sexism is. Mm-hmm. And for ex- I'll just give a little example. I used to work as a vocational rehabilitation counselor and attorneys would come to our office all the time for depositions. And one day the secretary wasn't up front. Somebody was at the front door. So I went up there and there was a woman and I opened the door and here I am, you know, a big badass feminist, right? And I open the mm-hmm. door and I, I say to her, oh, you must be the court reporter. And she mm-hmm. said, no, I'm the attorney. Mm-hmm. And I just, wow, <laughs> shocked me. I'm a yeah. professor and there's so many times to other students, because I'm also a librarian, where I'll, I'll say, did your professor tell you, did he tell you what the assignment is? And they're like, well, she told me. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. um, this is helpful for me though, because it also is what has made me aware of the fact that there must be a lot of other biases mm-hmm. inside of me, especially if this one's there and I'm a woman and I'm a feminist. So there must be other racial ones, age and so on in there. So feminism for me is very broad though. It is not just concerned with women, but it's concerned with all beings being able, regardless of gender, to live their most fulfilled life of no harm and with liberation and with, with freedom. So it's, it's, it doesn't take away from anyone else's freedom to be a feminist. It doesn't take away from men or, or any, any other genders to stand up for women. It really allows, in my view, everyone to be freer. Totally. And I love the humility that you bring to your messaging because I think that's important for all of us to look at the ways, you know, most of us have looked at the ways that we have taken part in systems of oppression around animal agriculture. I think it's safe to say that people listening to this are vegan or making more vegan choices at the very least, but mostly vegan. So we have looked at that and I think it's it takes a strength of character and it I think a necessary one to look at the ways that we continue to oppress and marginalize other communities beyond just animals. So thank you for sharing that. You sort of touched on mindfulness without meaning to, but you do have a whole section about mindfulness and love activism. And you wrote, mindfulness is when we are able to remain in the present moment and free our minds of anxiety, fear, depression, and other harmful emotions that are often the results of worrying about the past or future. Mindfulness may not come easy to us, but may be cultivated through meditation, yoga, or other practices. What do you mean by presence within the context of love activism, particularly as it relates to animals? And why is it so important? Yeah. 
I'm going to paraphrase, but Thich Nhat Hanh has a quote, and I believe it's something along the lines of how to show love in the greatest way is through your presence. And presence for me is something that I am always trying to get better at and practice more. For example, working at the library at the college where I am, I remind myself often that, well, that's a form of service, what I'm doing. And I need to be very present to each person who comes in for help, regardless of how many times I've answered that same question, perhaps, (laughs) Mm -hmm. or how distracted I am or overwhelmed or what else is going on in my life, to try to be present for that individual. Otherwise, I'm really missing... You're missing life then, I guess you could say. Yeah. You're missing the moment. In the evening, I have this ritual now where I'm taking care of my dog. I do these exercises with him twice a day. And I'm very present with him. And it's just me and him. And it takes a lot of time. And I can be very tired. And I make a point of trying to center myself and just give him my full attention in that moment. And I, not to get all cosmic or new age, but I I feel that it kind of taps me into something like by doing that, that I'm not alone caring for him. I feel like it, it taps me into something greater because I'm so present in my care for him at that moment. Yeah, I absolutely think so. And I like bring on the woo, you know, bring on the cosmic. I, I, I'm, I think we can opt in to feel that way too. I really love the idea of looking at this as something that is available to us because mindfulness, just like self-care, has become the victim of hashtag happy culture, like hashtag yes. self-care, hashtag mindfulness. And it can make it seem like you can't, find mindfulness unless you're meditating for X amount of minutes a day or something. And that can be really off-putting, especially to someone like me. However, you reminded me of how I feel like before I give a talk and it's because of Marianne, she would say to me, there's someone in the audience who doesn't know what you're about to talk about regarding veganism or regarding animal rights. And so you're you kind of owe it to that person. And then I, I, again, with the, with the woo, I feel more like I'm the conduit for that information. And it allows me to feel truly honored to be able to be the conduit. And it allows me to really be, as you're saying, present, especially in a time and age where we're, I have my phone like three inches from me right now. I don't think it's ever any further than that, you know, that strips of strips us of our ability to be present and mindful. Right. One of the aspects I talk about that can also help with mindfulness is something I call everyday magic. So there's a, that's another, that sounds also a little bit like new age or something. Bring but. it, bring it. I'm there. Warmed up. I'm warmed up. I want to know it. What's everyday magic? Everyday magic is elevating the common daily experiences and rituals in our lives to a level of where they are perhaps profound or even for some people, maybe spiritual or deep. And that can be 
the connections with other people or animals, but it can also be me being very excited every day about my coffee in the morning. That is my magic. My yes, it is course. a form of everyday magic. Yeah. And <laughs> it, what it says is indeed mystifying. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I have this like little thing I say, which is chocolate before noon, because I have chocolate before noon every day. Mm. And I was at, talking to my colleague last week and I said, I don't know how it is that this is delicious every single time. Like there's never yeah. a day, there's never a time where it's not good. Like, And I look forward to it every day. Totally. <laughs> oh, I love it. That so idea. That, yeah. yeah. That's everyday magic. And like, you know, walking by a park and seeing the tree or the flowers or the birds and being present and recognizing how wonderful that is. These are also things that can help us with the burnout and depression and, and all. Yeah. yeah. And it, it is an opt-in, especially mm-hmm. for me, I'll speak for myself. If I'm feeling depressed, it isn't going to necessarily come naturally. I'm not going to necessarily be walking past that park mm-hmm. and noticing the trees. So that's where the mindfulness comes in. It's it's almost like a fake until you make it. Like, oh, look at that tree. That is right. kind of, it is kind of extraordinary. That tree existed for so much longer than I did. And yeah. to me, that brings everything together, the environment, the animals, love, all of it. So switching gears, there is much discussion nowadays about the value, if any, of individual change in fighting for systemic change. And obviously, we don't want to just change ourselves. We want to change the world. How does love activism tie these together? And this is part of why I wrote the book, too, was feeling disillusioned about what can I actually do as just one person? But the truth is, when you think about it, at least for me, it's really never one action. There's always a ripple effect to it, I feel. And for example, if 10 people do something and other people see it, and it may change what they're doing, and they're going to tell more people about it, the possibility of that someday making a huge change is real. But as one person, I may not be able to change this entire big structure, but my small actions are going to contribute to changing it. And in some ways, it's like, Sometimes with artists and writers, if they don't have a lot of fans, they don't if they don't sell a lot of art or books or whatever, they can get discouraged. What's the point of doing this at all? But even if they do only sell a few books, they don't know the impact of those few copies. Let's say um, in love activism, because of the book, somebody decides to start doing more service in their community. And they maybe they never mentioned the book or like, you know, they're the only person who ever bought the book. <laughs> right, right. That one person doing that 
can end up impacting the entire community, all the people that witness it, all the other people who might do something because of what they saw. So you have no idea what a small act will end up accomplishing. Totally. Yeah. yeah, I love that. That's I love the arts and media specifically for that reason, because we don't know and it isn't always quantifiable, but we have to sort of have faith that it works. And it's not even just faith. If you look around, people are impacted every single day by art and by media. So it's not like you need to have a report say, you know, pointing to how A led to B because it's clear, it's everywhere. We are walking examples of creatures who are impacted by media and art. I was talking with somebody recently about her dissertation topic and she's very focused on wanting to end racism, which is, you know, it's huge, right? End racism. She was telling me that she's a black woman And she was telling me that, what's the point? You know, what am I going to really accomplish with this? What I'm doing with this? And I said, if your work could prevent the death of one Black person, would that be enough? And she said, yes. Mm -hmm. And I said, because it's going to do a lot more than that. Yeah. So if just one is enough, then yeah. your, your work is going to do a lot more. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. So before we move off the topic of love activism, are there any other simple steps people can take to incorporate love activism into their lives? I think just thinking deeply about what love means in all the different forms of love in your life and even possibly making a map of that. I've done workshops before where people do construct with words or images all the different things in their life that represents love. And then determining from that how you can put things more into action. Yeah, that's great. I like the visual too. That That's something that really speaks to me. Okay, I want to talk about a better world starts here. Who are the activists? in A Better World Starts Here. And, and and why did you do this book project? So in Love Activism, there are some brief interviews with 10 activists in the book at the end and doing different types of activism work. And that really inspired me to do a book-length project of just activist interviews. How did they become an activist? Tell me about your life story and what you do out in the world. And a lot of books about activism don't have veganism (laughs) as part of the book. So I wanted to also illustrate all these different forms of activism and present them as a whole unit, you could say. So there are people in the book that maybe do more specific trans activism or feminist activism, or something they're doing with poetry, perhaps, for human rights. But then there are also vegan activists in there. So it's really a demonstration of, yes, all these injustices are connected, 
And we also need activism that is reaching all these different forms of injustice. And Mm -hmm. we may not be able to focus on all of these in our lifetime in like a real intense way, but we can be aware of them all and try to live accordingly to the better world we desire. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm very obviously very intrigued by activists and the stories of how people went from, you know, like just the moment they were born to fighting for something bigger than themselves and what role that plays in their life. Yeah, all of those interviews for the most part start out like that where they describe what happened and how they became an activist. And I love that too. I love people's stories. So tell us about Stella Peabody's Wild Librarian Bakery and Bookstore. Yeah, I love this. When I first became vegan, I started baking a lot more because I I was transitioning from vegetarian to vegan and I love sweets. So I was making chocolate cake every week. You know, I was making all this stuff and I ended up getting a home bakery permit and it was called the Wild Librarian Bakery and it was through the (laughs) the county and I baked for different things at that time. And I then had a dream of opening a place that would be the Wild Librarian Bakery and Bookstore. So it would be a vegan bakery and a bookstore and a great community gathering space. And this just took a hold of me in a big way. And then I realized I probably can't do this because I can't afford it. (laughs) I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to find the finances for such a thing. So I can still bring this place out into the world in other ways so that, so that it can exist using my imagination. So Stella Peabody's Wild Librarian Bakery and Bookstore is a novel. It's fictional, but it has that imaginary place as the setting, the vegan bakery bookstore. And the main character, Stella Peabody, is a former librarian. And yes, she's loosely based (laughs) on me, but she is (laughs) fictional and things happen to her that never happened to me at all. (laughs) So the novel has some vegan recipes in there too. Yeah, so it's a way to hopefully cultivate this community space for readers mm-hmm. where they can feel like they can go there in their imagination and have some delicious vegan cupcakes and muffins while they're there. <laughs> so cute. I love that so much. Uh, okay, I have a question for you that is a total shift of direction here. Okay. I- I know you have a personal history of abuse and you talk about how it taught you the importance of showing vulnerability. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, certainly. Um, That's a big question. So let me... Yeah, I was like, let's go from cupcakes to that. (laughs) That was not my my finest transition in the history of the (laughs) RNS podcast, but I appreciate you being a trooper and talking about vulnerability with me. Yeah, I did have a secret, very painful secret for many years of my life, which was that I was being abused and it progressively became worse. And at the time, nobody would have known that was happening to me. And it took 
an amazing amount of, I don't know what you'd call it, acting to hide what was happening. And I was afraid of telling the truth of what was happening to me for different reasons. I mean, one was one was that I was afraid I would possibly be really harmed or even killed if other people knew because I, I was that terrified because of threats and all. So I was trying to keep it secret until I could figure out how to escape. I also didn't know how to deal with going to work because I, I knew he would come to my work. So I was trying to figure out how I could escape and not lose everything I had and go into hiding, I guess. And also, I thought that if people knew the truth about me, they would lose respect for me, mm-hmm. that they would question my abilities and my intellect and my emotional abilities. And I was a women's studies librarian at the time. I was very active feminist. And I was the chair of a division at my library. And I was in an abusive marriage. So I didn't know how to navigate that. And then there was just a weekend of absolute hell. And he ended up getting arrested. And and then everybody knew my secret Mm. overnight. And I was shocked that People only wanted to help me. People found me strong and courageous that I was able to leave. And there's so much shame around all of this and views of women that are abused that aren't true, like stereotypes. And that's why so many women suffer and even die. So once it was out there, I had to be vulnerable. And from that point on, it's no longer a secret. I let my students know at times. And it's public also. I don't go into great detail, but it's in the book, obviously. But I also went even beyond that and really allowed myself to be more authentic of who I am. Oh, wow. I had an experience about two years after I escaped and was rebuilding my life. And I, I, I took students on a field trip to a bookstore in downtown LA. And we were inside the bookstore. And as a professor, as a librarian and all, I was still not completely vulnerable, perhaps, completely myself Mm -hmm. in that context. And the song came on in the bookstore and I danced. You know, I just started dancing. And then after all this, one of the students came up to me later that day and said, my favorite thing was seeing you dance. And I said, what? Why? And she said, I saw you. That is giving me chills. And that was a real defining moment for me where I was different from some of those experiences 
with those students and that one in particular, I became mm-hmm. more vulnerable, more authentic mm-hmm. in wow. the classroom and everywhere. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all of that with us today. I, I want to also, I'm so sorry that you had to undergo what sounds extremely painful on so many different levels, but I am blown away by how you have come out of it and the person you've become and the the focus of love as your main messaging point, but also the core of how you live your life internally, externally. Like that is so inspiring. And I do want to echo what you said. A lot of people I know who have been in abusive relationships are not what they say what what you read in a novel of what someone's going to look like. It is a lot of activists, a lot of feminists, a lot of very strong people. And I'm certainly not in the place to deduce why that is, but you never actually know what someone is going through. And right. I think that, you know, I didn't even know this story until you came on our end house. But now putting that together, it sort of makes me think, think, oh, well, that's why your work is so powerful to me. It's like, you are in it. You are not just writing about these issues, but you are embedded in it. The idea of vulnerability powering some of these words or all of these words and experiences is extremely inspiring to me. Now, coming from where you came from to where you are, and obviously we're all on a journey, so you're still moving forward. You do talk about expanding our definition of love. What does that entail, especially given where you've been? Well, like I had mentioned um, earlier, when I started thinking about love a lot and love activism, it was at a time when I didn't have a partner and I had just made it through and rebuilt my life. And sometimes people would ask me, especially my younger students, how are you living alone? Or like, how can you be happy? And that's when I started to really think about love and how narrow the definition is. If it goes beyond romantic love, it seems the family love. But beyond that, not not a whole lot of love really <laughs> that you see in the media. Mm-hmm. But there are so many examples of love in our lives, if we think about it. I um, was teaching an expressive arts workshop and I started talking about love and I said, let me hear some examples of what love is for you beyond romantic love. Does anyone have any ideas? And the first person said, a warm bowl of soup on a cold day. (laughs) And I just said, yeah, yeah, I can see that, you know. Well, I'm I'm back to the coffee magic myself. <laughs> that's my that's my love language. That's part of your love map. Yeah, that, that's going to be the core cup. of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Everything everything else is going <laughs> to shoot out from that coffee cup. That's so funny. Yeah, I love that. I've I've definitely been influenced a lot from the work of bell hooks on love mm-hmm. and also Thich Nhat Hanh and the work of um, Clarissa Pinkola Estes who wrote Women Who Run With the Wolves. I feel love is present in, in all of that. 
bell hooks. I don't know anyone who writes about love like her. Mm-hmm. Love in in a lot of different contexts. Yeah, yeah, totally. I so agree. Oh gosh. Well, I have one more question for you for the podcast, though I do hope you stay on so I could ask you just a couple more for our flock bonus content. Though I do think I could probably just get a cup of coffee with you and talk to you for hours, which we should do sometime. So I have one final question for you. Since we started our hen house for many different reasons, the core of it, as I mentioned earlier, was that we don't think there is one right way to change the world for animals. But I also wanted a focus on the arts because I think, as I mentioned earlier, that the arts is a very powerful force of change making in ways that aren't always quantifiable, as I mentioned. To you, what does it mean to be a vegan artist? So obviously somebody can be a vegan artist and that's because their content of the art is specifically vegan. You see it and it's an animal rights piece. It has the the message and the content there. Someone can also be a vegan artist as I am because all of the materials I use are, are vegan. So the art itself and the content may not have a vegan message inherently in it, but in my artist statement, anyone who comes across that will discover that all of the materials used in creating this art do not have animal ingredients in them. So I think um, obviously for people listening to this show, they would know that a lot of art products, unfortunately, have animal ingredients in there. Mm. And you have to really research and find ones that don't. Sometimes there just might not be an equivalent and you just can't use that then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, with being vegan, it's something that is central to everything. And I, even if it's not overtly there, anyone looking into what I'm doing will see that that's a core principle behind everything, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I like the literal interpretation of that and also just kind of the energy behind what it means to be a vegan artist. That resonates a lot. So before you go, tell our listeners about some of your other projects and books and how they can find you online and support your efforts, maybe take a workshop. Love to know a little bit more about you and how to reach you. So if you just search my name, Stacy Russo, you should easily be able to find my website. It's just Stacy, S-T-A-C-Y dash Russo.com. My project that's going to be, there's going to be two books actually coming out later this year. One of them is my third picture book and it's Good Times in Dog City. It's an imaginary land where dogs travel to when we're sleeping. So we don't know about it. And they do all kinds of things there. I love that. (laughs) That's so awesome. I love drawing dogs. I just go for it. You know, I love it. (laughs) And right now a book in production is titled Beyond 70, The Lives of Creative Women. And it's interviews I've done with 
around 20 women artists and writers who are close to age 70 or older. So they range from 68 to 97. Mm-hmm. And they're very vibrant in their lives, in their work. And this particular project I'm hoping will work against both age and gender discrimination. There's so much stereotyping of older people, especially older women that are often made fun of and ridiculed and all all kinds of awful things. So this book definitely works against that. So that'll be coming out later this year. But I love to hear from anyone. Like I mentioned the thank you notes to writers and artists. If anyone likes anything I do, you you will make my day for sure. Mm -hmm. I found out about doing that from a writer who's passed away named Carolyn C. That's something that she recommended. And I was reading her book and I liked it so much that I emailed her. And she said, oh, you saved me today. And I thought, how powerful is that? Yeah, I love that too. You never know when somebody might be down and mm-hmm. absolutely send them an email or even a very famous person or something. Yeah. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful, inspiring, hopeful interview. And I just really love discussing all of these issues with you. So we will include the link to your website in our show notes and definitely keep us up to date about your projects because it sounds like you have some really cool things up your sleeve. And we'd love to stay on top of what you're doing to change the world for animals, to change the world for ourselves, to change the world for the better, just in general. So Stacy, thank you so much for joining us today in our hen house. And please hang on the line so we can have another little chat for our flock bonus content. Great. Thank you so much. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety's arising. Our first story is just so gross. Connecticut farmers want to sell more rabbit meat. Animal advocates say rabbits are not food. This is went by one Susan Dunn in the Hartford Coron. Hartford Current? I don't know. And she starts off with, you know, you could choose which picture you're going to use for this article. And it could go either way. And the picture that you're using for the article kind of demonstrates your attitude towards the issue. And you could have a little cute picture of a bunny. But instead, she has a picture of a Stuffat Talfinic or rabbit stew, which I am looking at right now and is very, very unappetizing. And this is an article about these two bills that are making their way through the state general assembly. And basically, they would make it easier for Connecticut farms, small farms, to sell rabbits for consumption to restaurants. They it would switch inspection from the USDA, which only will, you know, that, that means you have to have really, really a lot of rabbits, uh, to the state, which would be willing to inspect small dead bodies, I guess, you know, because that's what states do. 
The bills are supported, she points out, by small farmers and state agricultural officials. But animal rights activists, many from out of state and even out of the country, have crowded hearings on the topic to oppose the bills. Like, what? People are flying in from around the world, apparently, to oppose these bills. You know, you know, people from Connecticut think it's great to eat rabbits. All right. Uh, I'm getting carried away. I am appalled, says one of the, um, the, the executive director of Connecticut Votes for Animals, who presumably is actually from Connecticut, since that's her organization. I'm appalled, as are most animal lovers in Connecticut, that as the country recognizes the elevated role rabbits play as household pets, Connecticut has chosen to initiate a program that will expedite killing and processing of rabbits for food. I kind of hate this argument. I understand why they're making it. Uh, Well, I don't, you know, I don't know what their personal motives are, but I I do understand that characterizing an animal as a pet, like, you know, when people eat dogs, you can get people really horrified by it. But it does kind of, you know, sell out all of the other animals who aren't apparently considered pets. So that is the argument that they're making, that rabbits should be pets, not food. The real focus of the of the article, of course, is on the farmers. They get they get all of the the print time. You know, they're small farms. We always gotta be, love those small farms and the smaller the smaller number of animals that they murder. Opponents opponents have also cited in their testimonies that there is little demand for rabbit meat. Apparently, rabbit meat has been tried out and it hasn't done well. All right, so now we have to. Uh, so I have to bring in a new argument. Some supporters say that opinion is culturally unenlightened, as rabbit, common in grocery stores and markets in Europe, is a traditional staple in the diets of many foreign countries, and thousands of natives of those countries now live in Connecticut. So while, well, apparently, <laughs> the foreigners who love rabbits are, are, don't live in Connecticut, and they're flying in from out of state to, to uh, oppose this bill. But the foreigners who who like to eat rabbits, well, they live in Connecticut. And, you know, it would be real. Well, I like uh, I was going to use the term insensitive, but I see Joe Emmenheiser from the Yukon Extension uh, Service said it used it instead. The premise that there is no public demand for rabbit meat on its best day is ignorant and insensitive of other cultures. Well, you know, apparently we're just terrible people. A lot of Greeks, uh, says the owner of a Greek restaurant, see it on the menu and will run to the place. But not just Greeks order it. Apparently, you know, Greeks started the trend, but everybody loves to eat a rabbit. People who eat it are not put off by the cute little buddy connection. I bet they're not. They're not. All right, enough of rabbits and bunnies in Connecticut. I hope the bill fails, but, you know, probably won't. All right, this isn't a rising anxiety story. I just thought you'd like to hear about it because I like to hear about it. Children think farm animals deserve same treatment as pets. And this is about a survey that was done at the University of Exeter in the UK. And it starts off by saying, children differ dramatically from adults in their moral views on animals, new research shows. This is something that we have tended to sense, but it's nice to have research supporting it. It just proves that we start out better and get worse as we get older. That seems to be the way humans go. Unlike adults, children say farm animals should be treated the same as people and pets and think eating animals is less morally acceptable than adults do. 
The findings suggest that speciesism, a moral hierarchy that gives different value to different animals, is learned during adolescence. So, you know, like the Jesuits used to say, you got to get them young. Well, that's not exactly how they said it, but, you know, sort of like that. Apparently it's true. This is really, really good support for humane ed and for, you know, encouraging kids to be exposed to vegan foods and like hopefully shifting the culture. So, and which I think is happening and has happened, that children have more choices at home than they used to, or at least some of them do. The study also found that as people age, they are more likely to classify farm animals as food rather than pets, while children were equally likely to consider pigs to fall into either of those categories. Hopefully not both, because that would be psychopathic. But, you know, I basically think humans are kind of psychopathic when it comes to animals. The writers of the study do have suggestions, kind of what I just said. If children ate more plant-based foods in school, that might be more in line with their moral values and might reduce the normalization toward adult values that we identify in this study. So grab them while they're young. Well, apparently Gregory Bloom from the Meat Business column at meetingplace.com did not get grabbed when he was young, at least not by vegans. He did get grabbed when he was, well, maybe not Jesuits, but some kind of Christians. Uh, Because the title of this article is Climate Change in the Bible. In my ongoing search for current and historical facts about climate change. What are historical facts about climate change? I mean, just starting off, isn't it kind of a new phenomenon? Well, you know, I guess it's been going on for a while, but there have been climate changes in the past, of course. But we're talking now about current state of human-caused climate. Well, let me let me go back to Gregory. I need to I need to shut up. I've been reading a lot of research online and books. Well, thank God for that, Gregory. And listening to podcasts, probably not this one, and audiobooks during my daily commutes for sales calls. And it dawned on me that I should also consider what sort of climate change has been recorded in scripture. Oh, is that what dawned on you? <laughs> okay. There. Let's rely on scripture to tell us whether we have a problem here. He goes to to the story of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat, the story from the Bible, which had apparently seven plentiful years in Egypt that were followed by seven years of severe famine. You know, this is not exactly news that there have been famines in history. You don't have to read the Bible to know that. But, you know, apparently Gregory does. Uh, numerous lesser-known records of climate changes. I'm not sure a famine counts as a climate change. There have been climate changes in the past. But, the you know, there's always been weather, and there there has always been weather, and sometimes weather gets bad, and sometimes it gets bad for a long time. All right, something um, in the account of Abraham, blah, blah, blah. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a time because the famine was severe in the land. Okay, well, let's forget about climate change because, you know, apparently that happened. Whatever. <laughs> what? Oh, he points out. And there was that little rainy season in Noah's day. If you're currently inclined to be fearful of rising ocean levels, yeah, actually, Gregory, I am. Don't forget the astounding account of relentless worldwide torrential rains. All right, wait a minute. Worldwide? Like the people who wrote the Bible, I am not convinced, knew what was going on around the whole world. There have been floods in the past. Nobody's denying that. Oh, as he points out, the Bible and other historical records show us that the Earth's weather patterns have ebbed and flowed from time to period to time period. Well, yes, they have. That's kind of what I was just saying. But we don't draw from that. There's that. There's no such thing as, as well, I guess we do. 
If you hold a biblical worldview as I do, well, actually, I don't. All right, but I'll keep reading. Blah, 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 blah. In his omniscience, God knew exactly how many people would eventually inhabit the earth. I swear this is in here. And he planned and created the earth to sustain the population with food, water, and resources. Oh, just because God has a plan, it doesn't mean we trash the earth in the environment and think of it as disposable. Well, then stop. Get out of the meat business, Gregory. Get out of the meat business. If you want to be a responsible steward of God's gifts, as you say, get out of the meat business. And that's it for this week's rising anxieties and rising waters as well. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Bye.